Strategy and Insider, exploring future trends and their impacts. Welcome to the second episode of the Strategy and Insider podcast, where we are aiming to explore some of the most critical trends uh, that we will experience in future in healthcare, based on discussions and conversations we're having with various experts of the industry and, and leading actual practitioners of the field from the different sectors. We hope to inform you as listeners with new insights that really matter and uh, help you understand what the both opportunities as well as the challenges of that future of healthcare are. My name is Thomas Holbach and I'm the host of the first season of uh, the Strategy and Insider podcast. And I am a partner within Strategy and supporting and working with uh, leading pharmaceutical, biotech and other healthcare companies around their strategies and building up the right capabilities. I'm very happy to welcome Professor Dr. Thorsten Schweder to today's episode. And Thorsten is actually the Vice President for Research at the University of Basel. And he is a Professor of Bioinformatics at the University of Basel, as well as the Swiss Institute of Bioinformatics. So welcome, Thorsten. Hello, Thomas. It's a pleasure being here with you. Hey, uh, Thorsten, we actually met about three years ago um, in a joint project, thinking along the lines of what's the next level of precision medicine. And, and again, I'm very thrilled that you're here, um, bringing your more than 25 years of experience uh, in working in bioinformatics as well as in biomedical research. So uh, prior to jumping into any of the details, can you Please describe what basically your job that you're currently doing is. Uh, um, and of course, we know each other well, but just imagine we met at a, at a cocktail party at the weekend. How would you describe what you're doing? Yeah, I know this question from cocktail parties because <laughs> nobody knows what a bioinformatician is actually doing. I assume so. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, let's try to keep it in simple words. Um, we try to use computer algorithms to solve scientific questions in the field of life sciences. So the approach we're typically taking is we use knowledge-based or data-driven approaches. So we collect all the data and experimental information that is available in a certain field. And then we develop computer algorithms that allow to make predictions, in our case, about proteins that have not yet been experimentally characterized. And we want to simulate their properties and their behavior. So if I understood you correctly, it is that you're taking individual data points yeah, and bring that into context yeah, and generate out of that context new insights in how proteins are folding, how diseases are occurring, uh, how uh, mechanism of action of diseases or well-being is functioning. That, that I think, summarizes it. We try to use the, the data that is available, mm -hmm. try to systematically sort it in a way that we can interpret it, and then from there we extrapolate to unknown cases. I think it's a, it's a very vibrant field, bioinformatics, both at the same time as biomedical research. And if, if I uh, look at it from a, from a patient's perspective, what is actually the benefit or the benefits that uh, patients are getting from the work you and your teams do? There's the visible and there's the invisible part. Okay. I think the, the invisible part you discussed with Andreas Vicky last week. Mm-hmm. And that is that the quality of care at the hospitals or 
at home when doctors prescribe new drugs has really improved over the last years. And this is really the effect of biomedical research in many different places going on worldwide, including at the University of Basel. But then there's also a visible part, which for, for patients is, is somewhat entertaining at a certain point. Like one of our departments has found ways of creating virtual reality representations of the human body, mm -hmm. which we use on one side for training doctors and how to do surgery because they get photorealistic renderings of the tissue, the vessels, the bones, and they can plan surgical interventions on the computer. But you can use the same environment to explain the patient what is going to happen. Mm -hmm. So the patient sees his own body in a 3D rendering and will see what the surgeon is going to do when he cuts certain pieces of bone or does certain surgical interventions. Well, that brings uh, trust, uh, I assume, to the patient understanding, A, these people know what they do, uh, and I'm taking myself yeah, on, on that journey uh, with the doctors uh, because they, they explain what will happen during a, a surgery, for instance. Yeah, and you get a much better understanding of why it is necessary, what are the risks, uh, what happens if you don't do it, which if somebody explains it on a piece of paper with words, it's, it's much harder to understand. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, you can use this uh, virtual reality technologies then in the next step if you have a representation in the computer then you can also use the representation to steer a robot to do part of the surgery. Okay. And, and, and do you think part of that robot is, probably it's a combination, but still, uh, is it rather for cost-effectiveness reasons or is that also for quality reasons because they, they are 100% exact, I guess? For the moment, it's for quality. Okay. Because the, the way we do the laser cutting of the bone tissue, you can do at a much higher precision. You can plan the surgery so it's much more precise. And that also leads to better healing of the wound afterwards and to a much more a stronger mechanical strength mm -hmm. of, of the joint of the, of the bones. Since you're bringing more than 25 years of experience in those fields, what were the, the two, three things that changed in your eyes the most since you started? I think when, when bioinformatics started... Many people saw it in a very negative view. Either mm -hmm. it was seen as intruding the fields in a non-competent way, as these computer guys want to do things that only experimentalists can do, or it was seen as something very esoteric. Mm -hmm. And now, today, we have learned that it's actually neither nor. It's not a competition with experiment, but the two synergistically work together. And that's the only way how we make progress in life sciences these days, that we combine experimental approaches and computational in a very sensible synergistic way. Now, what I find funny is that we have a bit of history repeating here. Okay, in which way? In the way as all the discussions I remember from the early days of bioinformatics about bioinformaticians stealing data, doing useless things, replacing the jobs of experimentalists. We see repeating now when we talk about big data in the medical field. I'm sure you've seen the editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine that uses terms like data parasites, mm -hmm. which just expresses the same irrational fear that something we don't understand is happening here. And I think a lot of these fears we've seen in the past and that we've overcome, we see the same cultural transition in the field of the medical domain and the big data field. And how, how was that 
becoming in the past more of the normal? Um, did that get solved over time and people um, kind of realize that bioinformaticians are not stealing the data and are not replacing the experimental science, but are rather an additive element? What happened there? Is it the time that cures the, the, the problem? I think it's not the time that cures it, definitely not. I think it's the learning to trust each other that there's mutual benefit. And it's it works because the normal field of life sciences have developed rules of how we deal with each other. There is fair use of data. There is rules of how we engage with each other and how we work together to a common goal. It's not a wild west where it's grab and run. And I think this is the, the same type of discussion we have to have in other fields. It's bu building the trust on how there can be mutual benefit. And I think especially in... Yeah, fields such as very sensitive medical data, this is a must-have discussion to have ASAP. I think that's exactly the point. Yeah. When we pulled everything together for the recently published Future of Health um, article and viewpoint, you, you very correctly, in my eyes at least, commented uh, around the shortcomings with regard to that health data being very dispersed, being not standardized nor interoperable. Can you please elaborate a little more from a bioinformatician perspective and um, yeah, also probably explain a little, because you've seen that in the past, yeah, how to overcome some of these hurdles that we are currently facing? I think what, what we're seeing in the, in the medical field is not a complete repetition of what we've seen in the past. In, in the past, you generated your data and research mm -hmm. and you used it for a certain purpose. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing now is that A lot of data is generated or just happens to be generated in the real world. Not for a specific purpose, but typically for a different purpose. You treat a patient and you collect the data because you need to bill the health insurance. But at the same time, you're capturing medical information that could be used for research. And so it's, it's a slightly different situation. But what has changed is the amount of data that's generated. In the past, research was data-rich. The reality was data-poor because reality took place on paper. Yeah. And if I go to my GP today, he still scribbles part of his notes on paper and part of it is electronic. Now, the more we move digital, the more information-rich the real-world data gets. So it would not be a good idea not to use it for the benefit of patients and society and just ignore it. But that's where the problem comes. The data is at my GP's computer, it's at the university hospital, it's at my health insurance, it's on my iPhone, it's on my fitness tracker, it's anywhere. And it's not accessible for anyone in a reasonable way because it's technically interoperable. My fitness tracker software does not work with the software my doctor uses. It uses different formats. It's under different governance processes. The semantics is completely different. If you want to compare data from the university hospital in Geneva and the one in Basel. Mm -hmm. They use different language. They have a lot of implicit knowledge when you write blood pressure, that and such. Geneva knows it's measured in a certain way, but Basel doesn't know that. Mm -hmm. So today it's simply not possible to pool the data from the various sources and make any scientific sense out of it. And is that a lost train for us in a way that we now have all these different semantics, different standards, different languages being used and not really fitting to each other nor speaking to each other? Did we miss a chance uh, prior to going very big with that data to align on that? I don't see it as a lost train 
for two That's reasons. <laughs> <laughs> no, for, for two scientific reasons. Um, one is the speed at which we are generating new data and the resolution that we can have in generating this data is increasing so tremendously that the amount of data that you produce in a year that is coming dwarfs what we have done in many years before. So simply because the volume grows so quickly, the historic data becomes less and less important. Mm -hmm. And also the half-life of the usefulness of data is much shorter than we expected. Mm -hmm. So if you spend a lot of money today to buy health records that are 15 years old, mm -hmm. you're wasting your money. Because the scientific value of this data is extremely low. There's many studies that show that the, the value of the data decreases very quickly because... New data is out there. New data is mm. out there. Treatment regimens change. Measurement devices get more accurate. The correlation between the data points goes back. So, yeah, I mean, I'm very stunned by the fact that yeah, by the speed the data is 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 being generated in the field of medicine. Yeah, I always kind of cite that uh, famous professor um, who who once said, "When we had fifty years back knowledge in in healthcare in in medicine, yeah, it took fifty years to double that knowledge. That doubling of knowledge is expected by twenty twenty. So." basically a couple of months from now, to be doubled every uh, 73 days, which is just a humongously low number as compared to the past. So uh, it will be interesting on, on how we're finding ways to, to analyzing that. Do you think we have enough power, enough means to, to make sense of that huge amount of data that, that is growing faster than we can look at it? Today's algorithms, we think, are not really suitable to analyze this data volumes and also the, the heterogeneity of the data in an efficient way. So when you, when you listen to some of the big tech players, it always sounds like, just give us the data, we run it through our existing algorithms and health will be better. And I think that's too short-sighted for two reasons. First, current algorithms very often misinterpret the data that's out there and we need both data curation and better algorithms to make use of it, but also a lot of health problems are simply not solved. Mm -hmm. So just having algorithms that analyze the data does not cure you if there's no chemical entities that treat your disease. So we have to be a bit careful in what we promise in terms of what big data can deliver. Okay. And is there any kind of field in medicine where you would see that the most advanced uh, people are thinking or I'm also thinking in terms of wherever you have pictures yeah wherever you have an MRI scan or a CT scan is that the first field where we where we will be seeing benefits of it um, or w would you have a totally different view on that I think the the first benefits you will see in all areas were what we do is pattern recognition okay because that's where computer algorithms are just much superior to human brains mm -hmm. And they don't get tired, they're reproducible, you can exactly figure out when they make mistakes and improve them. So all the areas where a doctor for making a diagnosis looks at a pattern and tries to recognize a pattern of disease and separate it from, from a healthy pattern. And that is areas like all the imaging fields. But this might also very soon be areas of genetics, where a certain occurrence of variation is indicative of certain disease phenotypes mm -hmm. in the oncology field, for example. So in, in these areas, I think we'll see the, the first ones. We talk a lot about data now, but also in general, um, and, and health and, and, and that lifestyle data that is also more and more being important in healthcare is 
in a way super sensitive uh, and you you at the very beginning of our conversation said we need to trust to have that trust into data and algorithms which i firmly believe is the case how do you see that from a data privacy from a data protection and from a cybersecurity standpoint because uh, me personally i think um, i'm okay for someone uh, to know that i bought a certain book or i'm i'm drinking a certain type of water but with other stuff uh, around health and health conditions i'm i'm not so in favor of seeing that leakage uh, somewhere else how do you see that from a from a true expert perspective How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> This is um, typically... <laughs> with you, um, as much as you like. Uh. <laughs> no, that is typically the question that ends in a very long discussion. <laughs> no. Okay, let me start with my usual rant. I really don't like the word data protection okay. because it's not the data we are protecting. We're actually protecting the citizen. Mm -hmm. And that gives a completely different angle because if, if you take an analogy like traffic... Mm -hmm. In traffic, we have rules because we want to make sure that we are safe if we participate in traffic. And these rules, they are coded in law and there's people who are checking that we stick to the rules. And the penalties, they're adjusted to the risk that you're taking by breaking the rules. Okay. Somehow we haven't yet adopted this model in the data privacy or data protection area. And I think what we need to look at, what is the risk that is associated with you sharing your data for a specific purpose? And then we have to appropriately mitigate the risks. And this can be either on a legal side, mm -hmm. making sure that there is no legal way that the data you shared for a good purpose, like research, can be used against you in another context, like your employer deciding that you're not employable because you have a certain mutation or similar things. Now, this is something the legislator can solve by having non-discrimination acts or similar regulations. And then, of course, somebody needs to check and needs to make sure that employers or insurances or whatever you allow or disallow are not misusing that. And what we are currently focusing a lot on is the other angle. That's the technical measures to make sure that data never leaves the computer or is protected from something. And I think we're over-interpreting in many cases the abilities we have to ensure that data never leaves a certain compute system or can never be traced back. Because what we've seen in the past is many cryptographic algorithms that we thought were secure, were broken, data leaks out of computer systems that are supposed to be safe, so for me, it's both. We need on one side to do all the technical effort we can, mm -hmm. but on the other side, have the legal backing to make sure that even if a technical break happens, the data cannot be misused. Now, in terms of technology, there's a lot of interesting developments going on these days. Mm -hmm. In the past, we always thought that we can share data in a way that it's anonymized. Mm -hmm. Now, that, of course, assumes that you keep the data alone. The moment you are in a big data age where you can take one data set and combine it with others, like your mobile phone data, your tracking data from your fitness. De-anonymize it. You de-anonymize mm. it very quickly. So these concepts, I think, are not really safe in a mm. big data world. So we need to come up with other ways of doing it. You rightly said um, we need 
technical solutions on how to make sure that it's not leaking, that it's in kind of a safe environment and, and no one can, can basically touch upon to it uh, that that's not, not supposed to do. But still you have humans to take with you on that journey, right? So that emotional factor of people needing to trust yeah, not always comes from technicalities or regulations, I assume. But I think it's these two things. It's We have to demonstrate that we do everything which is technically possible mm -hmm. and that is legally sensible to protect your data. Because trust means that you trust me that I do whatever I can do to protect you and your data and your autonomy and integrity. The, in, in that sense, I think trust is the consequence of us being trustworthy in the way how we handle this type of data. And there's a very elegant model we're currently exploring with our colleagues in the Netherlands, and they, they nicknamed it the personalized health train. Okay. The computer scientist guys would more call it privacy-preserving distributed learning. And the idea there is that you do not share the data. You leave the data where it is. You send the algorithm to the data. So it's you would keep your data into a vault you trust. Mm -hmm. Might be your hospital, might be your bank, might be your insurance, might be whatever you choose. And you send your key and for them to apply it. Then. You may, no, you leave the data where it is, but you allow somebody to use your data to do a certain analysis, some statistics. So the algorithm would travel to your bank, your insurance, compute on the data, but what leaves is the result of the computation. So your data always stays where it is. And I think this, this is a model that we should think about much more in the future because it solves a lot of these privacy issues. Don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm totally in favor of protecting, not the data, as you say, but, but us as citizens, right? I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely in favor of that. But with those protection rules and workarounds that we're spending energy on and bringing up, is this, to a certain degree, um, and now I'm just asking the researcher in you, is that hindering innovation? I'm asking that from, for, for specific reasons, because there will be countries that will have different approaches towards protection of citizens and, and, and privacy. Um, and they might be rather fluent in using that data. Do we hinder ourselves? And is that a risk for us as a society? If you're too slow in implementing methods that allow us to integrate data while protecting privacy, yes. I'm still optimistic that on the long run, doing it in a clean way is better. Because this is the only way how on the long run we can earn trust of our population to share data and to leave it in that system. You still have hopes that, we, that we're quick enough in doing that. Do you have kind of a period in mind until when we need to get that solved? Are we talking months, years, one year, five years? What, what's, your, what's your gut feeling here? That is a tricky question. I started some years ago working on a project called the Swiss Personalized Health Network, okay. where we tried to solve exactly that problem, trying to build an interoperability, interoperability layer between all the university hospitals in this so they, country. Yeah, all kind of can be integrated they, into one system and they, speak to each other. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And what we are separating is the, the governance from the data transfers. So mm -hmm. We're talking about the technical interoperability, semantic interoperability mm -hmm. and processes, And then project by project data can be shared if there's the appropriate ethical mechanisms in place. And I think I underestimated a bit the size of the task. 
Okay. Because in the beginning, I thought it's a technical problem, but then we figured it's more a social engineering problem, mm -hmm. getting everybody to agree on moving forward. Because a lot of cases, you figure that arguments you hear about data protection are actually not arguments about data protection, but about many other reasons of not sharing data. Also for personal mm -hmm. interests and… Uh, for all, all kind of other mm -hmm. economic reasons or IP or mm -hmm. whatever comes up there. Mm -hmm. So I, I would… It's rather a shield of blocking things away. Eh? Exactly. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to give you a number when I think we can overcome this because there's, there's many problems that, that overlay. But would you agree with me we shouldn't spend too much time uh, thinking about uh, when we do it but rather start doing it now and solving it now because we, others are not sleeping. Guess, we huh? started doing it. We started it with this federal program and we're in the middle of it. The program r has now been running for two years Okay, and will run another six years. So, uh, so that's the time frame in which we think we can operate and get this country wide rolled out here. Data is also something that uh, obviously big data driven technology companies uh, are good at, yeah? at least in handling that data, generating insights into that data, and also developing solutions out of the insights uh, that they have been uh, finding in, in, in large data sets. And as we are moving uh, towards a future of healthcare that will be way more digitally driven, people-centric and preventative, also in our survey that we did uh, amongst the, the 120 plus pharma executives, they are seeing tech players way ahead of themselves, but also way ahead of any other healthcare stakeholder that is existent from a traditional perspective. A, would you agree with that, yeah, that tech is, is poised to take a lead for the, for the moment at least? And, and, and second, where do you see strongholds of traditional players uh, that will have also uh, a role in that future? I think I would agree with that assessment. So far from what, what we see, big tech is so close to the individual citizen in many areas of our daily life. Mm -hmm. And they're so used to combining this mechanism of providing a personalized service with collecting data in the background that nobody else has, has this kind of market power, access to people and the experience of how to do it. So, yes, I, I, I share this view. It will be big tech that takes the lead on it. Now, thinking in terms of a strategy from a tech player who has all these strongholds, as you rightly elaborated at the beginning, um, if there is an area where they would go first yeah, or could go first is rather the normal or easier to to manage diseases yeah, rather than the the very hard to treat life threatening very rare diseases where a lot of new knowledge needs to be built first before you can uh, talk about uh, any therapy or curation that is one strategy what could run mm -hmm. The other is if you really wanted to go into the more intensive market, mm -hmm. then the question is what additional service could you offer that the current system doesn't offer? Mm -hmm. And you've seen maybe the Bertelsmann study of the last days in Germany. You may have read about some of the Inspired to Life studies that in the Netherlands have been done. And let, let me put it on a personal note. If one of your family members would be diagnosed with a cancer today, mm -hmm. how would you choose your hospital? You take the nearest, 
you take what your health insurance recommends or you figure out what is the best specialized place in that area. And you do everything to get into that hospital. Exactly. I think you gave the answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly and, that. And I think that that's another area where you don't have to do the full deep integration, mm -hmm. but you can actually add something which is really of value to patients. But that, of course, then decouples patients from the service units. And already there, uh, we're seeing solutions to it, right? Uh, I recently came across of Uber Health, which is um, supporting patients getting from A to B, yeah? and B being the best hospital, and sending the right transportation, uh, so the vehicle that fits the, the, the purposes of that very patient. Uh, and, by the way, being HIPAA compliant, yeah? so being able to trade all um, uh, health-related, very sensitive information on their Uber system. Um, it's a very small step going from bring me to this hospital to trusting also this this to the systems and bring me the, to the best hospital that fulfills the following criteria. I like very much your point around we need to distinguish between life-threatening, very hard-to-treat diseases where you always need that super uh, medical knowledge and um, investments into, into basic research. And then you have kind of the normal retail OTC market, as you put it, where um, a lot can be done to support without the, the very uh, nitty-gritty and very detailed uh, drug development behind it. And then there's, of course, the transition into the recreational slash prevention area mm -hmm. where it's not even clear is it medical treatment is it prevention is it just fun mm. you touch a, an interesting point uh, because uh, we we know how well regulated and how well standardized pharma and also other traditional players are running their r&d efforts uh, and we also know how different approaches in the technology area um are um, looking rather into customer centricity, speed of developing something, prototyping something, 80% is enough, uh, which you would not hear from a, from a traditional pharma company when, when, uh, when doing R&D and producing a drug. Where do you see actually kind of problems, uh, those two worlds coming together, that they kind of rather compete uh, for who innovates the next big thing first? Um, or is there any, any hope that a combination of those um, capabilities uh, could be a winning combination? I think we all were hoping that the combination would be the way moving forward because mm -hmm. there, there's definitely advantages in the quick and dirty approach that the IT sector is taking in terms of moving quickly in terms of figuring market inefficiencies and, and making things faster to the patient. While on the other side, you don't want to give up on the reliability, on the safety you have in, in the current highly regulated system. But somehow I was a bit disappointed to see that over the last five years, there was no convergence of the two sectors. Because mm -hmm. I think that there could be learnings on both sides. But obviously the cultures are so different that it's it's very hard to come to a, a synergistic way of moving forward. I've, I've seen a few discussions between device manufacturers, big data and, and big pharma and simply during the meetings to agree on things like development cycles, mm -hmm. wording on what is good enough was, was a challenge. So that convergence being... A practical problem is it then rather that either 
the technology players learn how to uh, live and work and, and, and walk in a, in a highly regulated market and, and take a bit of, of that mentality and mindset on board uh, to their speed and 80-20 rule and what, what have you. And likewise, pharma and, and medtech uh, being highly regulated needs to become quicker and, and also taking at some points uh, an 80-20 approach. Is that rather the one or the other? I think it's both. I think both sides need, need to move. C clearly, quick and dirty is not what you want to do if you go into the health sector. Mm -hmm. Now, on the other side, if you really move to personalized medicine, the classical way of big clinical trials with lots of patients over many years will just not fly if your cohort numbers were smaller and smaller. And if your genetic markers allow you to separate smaller and smaller subpopulations, then the classical clinical trial model just doesn't hold anymore. So we also have to find more adaptive ways of testing things on smaller cohorts and going towards post-market surveillance. So I think bo both sides will have to move to come to a more agile model in developing things. I don't want to let you go um, before talking a little about uh, your other role, because you're not only a bioinformatician, but you're also obviously entrenched in, in the education of future scientists, but also future healthcare professionals, uh, such as doctors and nurses and, and alike. Do you have the, uh, the understanding that the curriculum that we're having for these healthcare professionals um, is the right one for now? Thing in, in today's education, what, what we're lacking is a proficient use of these IT technologies. Mm -hmm. So you know their shortcomings, you know their strengths, you know to optimally use them to the benefit of the patient. Mm -hmm. And that is something that is really missing. Okay. And on the other side, I think by applying these technologies, you will free capacity from the doctors to focus on the patient itself, the care, the, the whole surrounding. And that is actually what Andreas in the last mm -hmm. podcast was, was actually referencing. I want to have access to these AI algorithms and I want to I have technical support of these tools because this frees up my time that I can spend with my patient and uh, the patient needs psychological support. But sometimes he said the patient just wants to talk about the weather or the food that he had yesterday. But in the current system, he doesn't have time for it. Uh, he needs to prioritize and need to look into data to take hopefully the right decision for the patient. Yeah. And I think this is really something where the role of the doctor is becoming much more important in the future. Because if you have these AI algorithms, they will offer you 25 different options and they will all have a certain probability. Mm -hmm. But then which one to pick, you can use two parameters. You can say, I just use the AI recommendation like your YouTube auto feed will just play you the next video by what Google thinks is good for their business mm -hmm. model. Or you see what is the situation of the patient. Is it an, a therapy that maximizes the treatment outcome probability mm -hmm. but maybe compromises on quality of life? Or is the family situation of the patient more such that you would choose a treatment option which is less invasive, has a higher quality of life so the person can spend time with their family but at the cost of a slightly reduced probability of cure. Mm -hmm. And this is something where you need the doctor's advice and where no AI can actually make the decision for you. As you know, we're doing that podcast series looking into that future of health and talking to uh, different stakeholders from different 
areas. Uh, we had a, a doctor um, talking about uh, clinical realities. You are um, a bioinformatician and researcher and being the educational body um, in, in, in healthcare. And we also talk uh, with pharma, we talk with tech and others. Now, speaking to all of them, what do you think um, would bring our future of health a little closer if you would have one wish for these different actors in the system in healthcare all kind of converging around the interest of what's next what's good for the patient what do you think would bring us the next big step as a scientist of course i would wish for that we get to this point where the health data becomes transparently available as a common good for doing research on it and that it doesn't become a data as an asset where it gets locked away in somebody's digital vault, but we can really all together use the biomedical data for making the next step both in research and in treatment because at the moment I think we're missing a lot of opportunities not only in the say business world and making the healthcare sector more efficient but also as I indicated before in the in the research side, because a lot of medical problems are not solved today. There's still a lot of research needed for finding new chemical entities, better understanding disease etiology. And that is something where we can all together do much better in the future. Mm -hmm. And finding data interoperability, I think, is, is the step in, the, in this direction that will help us to make this progress. And if I connect mm -hmm. that to what you said at the beginning, that we need to have that yeah, common understanding of data, common languages, common standards. If we want to have that as a common good, uh, we probably need to first talk about um, how those standards uh, can be looking like across and within that network of different stakeholders. So grouping them around a table could be something as a starting point to, to make your wish a reality, I assume. That is definitely one way of doing it and the way I think it should be done. I think one, one important factor there is that if you think about who or what entity could do this data integration. Now, technically, we said big tech is in the lead. Okay. But that is not really the interesting question. The question is more on the governance layer. Mm -hmm. And who would like, be kind of poised or best place to, to take that And if you ask me idea? from an idealistic point of view, I think it's the citizen. I'm the best data integrator of my data because I'm the only one who knows what I'm doing, where it is, what is the correct data. So building it around a service provider, I think is the wrong concept. It should be built around the citizen mm -hmm. because it's in your own interest that your data is correct, that it is consistent and that you can decide what it is used for, what it is not used for. So we need to find models where all the technical and economical stakeholders come together and define the platforms, how it works. I think we have to make sure that from a governance perspective, it's, it's a citizen-centric approach, both in terms of data quality, as well as in terms of trust and in terms of long-term sustainability of the system. And again, that would be the customer-centric approach in the end. Definitely. Very good. Um, uh, Thorsten, thanks a lot. I think that was a, a very comprehensive discussion that we had. And 
to wrap it up, what are the key takeaways of, of that discussion that we just had? I think one, one core aspect is that data will be absolutely key for the future of health. Ideally, we find ways of treating it as, as a common good, while we on one side find technical solutions to make it available mm -hmm. for use of data, but at the same time protecting the citizens' and patients' privacy. And um, jumping on that uh, technical aspect, uh, you, you commented before that technical integration and, and ensuring some sort of interoperability this might be rather coming from the tech players because this is what they are good at yeah? at the same time these tech players um, uh, might rather focus on uh, easier to treat or manage diseases or uh, focus on wraparound services for patients um, and we are actually seeing examples of that and at the same time what we also learned is that Either tech is learning how to um, maneuver in, in a more highly regulated market, such as healthcare, or pharma at the same time getting more agile yeah, and uh, getting more speedy in, in developing these digital health solutions, or a combination of the two, or even do it together at some point. I think what's also important is that we take our professionals with us on that journey. So that has really consequences on the education, both of the medical doctors as well as on the researchers in the, in the biomedical field, that they improve their data science skills, mm -hmm. that they can will be able to handle the, the big data challenges. So bottom line, um, the future of health will be full of opportunities, full of challenges to be tackled. Um, yeah, and only time will tell um, how uh, this is going to happen and very much looking forward um, uh, to see that happening in future. So, exciting times ahead. Oh, absolutely exciting times ahead. I, I, I would love to in, invite you already now for the next podcast in, let's say, five years from now, and we're looking <laughs> back the, the, the five years period, what changed since. Uh, very curious to, to do that, actually. Uh, let, let's kind of pencil that into our books yeah? <laughs> and redo that for sure. Um, but yeah, for now, uh, Torsten, thanks a lot uh, for your time. Uh, thanks a lot for sharing so openly your, your, your thoughts and, and especially your um, ideas around the future of health and how to make that make that a little more happen in future if anyone on the line wants to find out more information obviously feel free to visit our strategy and website and, and also download the latest uh, future of health study where also torsten did comment uh, very nicely and yeah very much looking forward to broadcasting the next podcast where we uh, then will talk about um, how pharma is going to maneuver in this new world and uh, very thrilled to then have Teresa Graham from Roche with me during uh, the next podcast session where we're discussing how pharma sees the future of health and uh, is about to position um, in, in that future of health and take advantage of the possibilities but also um, circumvent challenges that will present. Thanks very much for listening and have a good day. Strategy and strategy made real.